If you were to pick one phrase, it has probably been tweeted more than any other in response to this news. The phrase would be, tax all the churches. On this episode of Let's Get Real, I sit down and talk with Aaron Miller. He is an expert in nonprofit organization governance and also in ethics, $100 billion investment. How would you summarize a lot of the main issues? First, the accusation is that the church is breaking federal tax law. Second issue related to whether or not the church is disclosing the way it's trading some public securities. Third is, should the church be keeping this confidential? Fourth is, should a church even have that much in savings rather than distributing it to people? In if you take Harvard's endowment and you divide it by the number of students, their endowment is equal to about $2.3 million per student. They got $2 million per student. The U has $38,000 per student. If you take the church's endowment divided by the number of church members, it's only around, this is the part that nobody's talking about. It drives me crazy. What is the secret money being, what's, what's it being used for? So far, the answer is, we're living in a time when the public discourse or conversations around this idea of sacrifice are turning especially critical. A hundred billion dollar endowment. Yeah. Um, so just can you give us some background on how you even got to the point where you're like, I'm going to write this article? Yeah, sure. So I've been teaching at BYU for 17 years now. Five years as an adjunct and 12 years full time as what's called a professional faculty member or teaching faculty. Yeah. Um, my practice area, so I used to be a lawyer. My practice area was primarily nonprofit organizations. So I'd help people set up and, 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 uh, operate nonprofits. I'd help them make sure they're following all the legal requirements that you need to follow as a nonprofit organization. And so, um, when the Washington post came out with the original article that broke the news saying that the church had a hundred billion dollars essentially in savings or investments. That was a number nobody had ever heard. People obviously had speculated for a long time that the church had substantial financial resources, but they, um, this is the first time anybody pinned a number to it. But it didn't just come with a disclosure of a number. It came with an accusation that the church was breaking the law. Mm. In particular, that it was breaking federal tax law, um, which is an area where I had done work. Um, and it's an area that I teach about. But this is a pretty, pretty high profile, uh, pretty high profile topic. Yeah. Um, for, for a lot of people. It's and probably the most read thing I've ever written. I really? Mean, yeah, my understanding is it's been read a couple hundred thousand times so far, which wow. shows the level of interest in the topic because it, it you know, it, it, it definitely was something that a lot of people wanted to know more about. So let's get into that. Why do you think that this yeah. is such a topic, just from what your expertise are, why is this such a, you know, such a topic that people just want to dive into? Yeah, I think there are a few things going on. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, the number is really large. I mean, $100 billion is a lot of money. Uh, to put that into context in the nonprofit space, it's the largest single nonprofit we know of in terms of assets. And mm. so previously, if you were to say what what's the biggest nonprofit in the world, it's actually another nonprofit most people haven't heard of called Fidelity Charitable, which is something called a donor advice fund that Fidelity uh, runs that uh, helps people do their charitable giving in this sort of structured, tax-efficient way. Um, last I checked, they have around $70 billion in assets. And so $100 billion made it the largest nonprofit in the United States by assets. Um, next closest to Fidelity would be like Harvard, which very famously mm. has an endowment of a little over $50 billion. And then the Gates Foundation, which is about in the same ballpark, which is the largest private, what's called a private foundation, which is a technical legal definition. And they're the largest private foundation that we know of. So when people hear 100 billion, it's a big number. Yeah. Putting it into context, you're saying, well, if you take a step back, 
you know, people that kind of roughly go around this similar numbers. Yeah. You're looking at the closest is 70 billion. And then you get into Harvard and some of these other organizations like the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation yeah. are right around that. What, what makes it different when you're considering looking at the comparison to yeah. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? There's some big important differences, actually, that sort of get lost when you just do those raw comparisons. And um, uh, so let's take the philanthropy side first. So let's take Fidelity and the Gates Foundation. Uh, Fidelity Charitable and the Gates Foundation, their only purpose is to give money away. Mm. I mean, that is by law how they're structured. So Fidelity, you put your money into what's called a donor advice fund. Let's say you've got $15,000 in there. At some point, you're going to direct it to some other charitable activity, your local Boys and Girls Club, mm. you know, maybe to your to your church, to a community center, whatever. Mm. Um so that's what Fidelity Charitable does. The, the Gates Foundation is the same. They just do their giving on a much larger scale in the sense that, you know, when they give out grants, they give in chunks of a few million dollars or more. Mm -hmm. But again, it's all meant to sort of fuel charitable activity done by other organizations. So the Gates, they put a lot of money into international development, public health issues. Uh, they focus a lot on education, other poverty issues. Um, they have a huge staff. They spend well over a billion dollars a year just on their own staff mm. to help give all this money away. So that's philanthropic side. Okay. The, the church is different because it's actively and plans to, in perpetuity, sustain the activity of its members, which are over 17 million now globally. Mm. And the reason that's different is because the Gates Foundation doesn't, it could give away its all, all its money, and then they're done. Mm. There's no point at which the church theoretically should be done, mm. right? There's no point at which like, okay, we're out of money, we're done, we wrap up. I mean, what happens when people go to church on Sunday and the lights are off because nobody's paying the electrical bill? This, yeah. this idea of an ongoing charitable activity, and we need to talk about why religion is considered charity because that's another misconception that people have about the law here. Mm. But uh, but the church has this ongoing activity of supporting its members, building temples, um, you know, uh, providing all kinds of education. The church spends, we know, because it was publicly announced by Elder Gilbert that the church spends over a billion dollars a year on higher, on its higher education activities. So um, so this is an important difference when we make these comparisons. The the purpose of Fidelity Charitable or the Gates Foundation is to give the money away. That's its purpose. That's right. Uh, that is not the inherent purpose of a church, or in that case, a university. And so Harvard's another good example. You know, Harvard's job is to, its purpose is to provide an education to its students over the years and to cultivate uh, academic research in all sorts of areas that matter. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, an, 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 a mission that they hope to never abandon, that's meaning right. that it's one they want to operate in perpetuity. And so... So to say that Harvard should just give all of its money away too, again, misrepresents its purpose. And so it's not really an apples to apples comparison to, you know, sort of compare the Gates Foundation or Fidelity Charitable to the church. It's probably a closer comparison to, and we're taking just the numbers yeah, publicly, yeah. to compare like Harvard to uh, the church, for example. Yeah. Okay, so here's like an interesting fact that I actually did some rough math on, and this is rough math. But if we're going to be comparing the church to, say, Harvard University or any other university for yeah. that matter, and not to Fidelity and the Gates Foundation, um, which maybe is a better comparison because we're talking about ongoing nonprofit activity, not just philanthropy, right? So if you take Harvard's endowment and you divide it by the number of students, 
their endowment is equal to about $2.3 million per student. And that's any that's students at any active time at Harvard. Really? So like they so like if, if you divide it up among the students, it'd be like each student had a two point three million dollar bank account attached to them. Wow. Um I, I decided it'd be interesting to look at the U, not because I like want to pick on the U as a professor, <laughs> <laughs> but, but because this is a public institution here yeah. locally, right? It's down the street from the church. Yeah, compare. Yeah, they, so they have an endowment of a little over a billion dollars. If you divide that by the number of active students that they have, it's around uh, $38,000 per student. So by the way, that really puts Harvard into context, right? Yeah, yeah. They got $2 million per student. The U has $38,000 per student. If you take the church's endowment mm. and divide it by the number of members, and this is taking a number that's higher than the $100 billion number, by the way, but if you take that amount divided by the number of church members, it's only around $6,000 per church member. Wow. So if you look at like the Whoa. constituency that they serve, mm. like if you look at like, okay, here's a nonprofit that has its purpose to serve this group of people. Harvard is serving its people with $2.3 million per person, student. And that's obviously ignoring staff and faculty and all that. Yeah. They all get paid. Students don't. At the U, it's $38,000 per beneficiary, mm -hmm. per student. And for the church, it's just around 6000 The church could spend more of this, right, of their savings to require fewer volunteers, for example. Um, but it would probably start spending down what it has and eventually run out of money. So... So, but that's interesting too, though, because from my understanding, Harvard, you're saying their endowment would be what you say? It's a little over 50 billion. 50 billion, whereas yeah. the church uses a billion a year. Well, that, 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 that's a different, that's a different yeah. conversation. That's a different conversation. Yeah. No, but the point is, is yeah. Harvard spends its money on an ongoing basis on education. That's right. The church spends its money on an ongoing basis on education, and on welfare, on uh, missionary work. building temples on missionary work on, you know, uh, all sorts of not like education that's not in higher ed, uh, like seminaries, for example. And so, so there, there are all these ongoing activities that are part of the equation here. And so the idea that, it, that the church, um, it ought to be a philanthropic organization ignores the fact that it has an ongoing obligation to its members that will exist for as long as they're members of the church. So when you look at the, that number, it sounds pretty... The number is still huge. Let's not have yeah. any like lack of clarity about that. I mean, this <laughs> is a really big number. Um, and the other thing I should say is all the conversation we're going to have about um, about the church finances here, just got to have two caveats to yeah. make clear. Yeah. Uh, number one, I obviously am not speaking in any yeah. official capacity, nor do I have any special knowledge, right? Yeah. I mean, nobody for church headquarters has called me up to say, hey, yeah. Aaron, here are the real numbers. And they wouldn't because yeah. I have no reason to know. You know, I'm not, I'm not part of that decision-making process. So there's no reason for me to know that. But um, so that's number one, is that I obviously am not speaking in any official capacity for the church because I don't have any particular special knowledge about the finances. But number two, very few people actually do. So we have that knowledge, I mean. So as long as we're going to be talking about church finances, we have to recognize that we're doing a lot of speculation. That's true. And it's not just faithful members of the church who feel like they want to come to the defense of the church um, when it comes to, you know, these news items. But it, the same is true for critics who are speaking out. They're also speaking uh, in speculative ways, too. And so it's good for all of us to have a little bit of humility and to recognize like there's a lot we don't know yeah. about the size of the resources. We don't know the true size. We, we have rough ideas. Um, but, uh, 
but but we don't know the true size. We also don't know um, its purposes. We don't know how it's. We don't know uh, everything about how it's managed. We know some because it has to be disclosed because of SEC requirements. But um, there's just a lot we're guessing at, and it's important that if we're going to be talking about this, we acknowledge that a lot of what we're doing is guessing. Yeah. So on the tax law stuff, and we'll talk about this. Um, the church building up these assets is doing what is fully legally entitled to under the tax law. Um, you might argue that churches shouldn't be allowed to do that. The tax law allows them to do it. So they didn't break the law. Where, there, where there's a more specific accusation is there were two entities, business for-profit entities, that the church made a distribution. And I'm using air quotes here because we don't know the nature of the transaction. and uh-huh. The whistleblower doesn't detail them. But basically, the accusation is that Enzyme Peak through the church sent a bunch of money to City Creek for the development of a shopping mall. And that distribution, um, the accusation is that is that, that was benefiting private investors, making them rich, which would violate tax law if that was true. Um, but the nature of the distribution matters immensely. And if all the church is doing was buying an ownership interest with that money yeah. in, in the City Creek development, it's entirely completely legal. And, and and the evidence has not been able to show that that distribution was illegal. And it was almost certainly the case that the church took that money and bought an ownership interest or or deepened its ownership interest with that money. Which, what would, what would that mean? If it, it would just do mean that? it's an investment. An investment and, and in its own. Nonprofits invest yeah. all the time. And it's they're in not itself. not expected to, okay. but they're encouraged to. So for, so, clarific- so for clarification, in that sense, because I believe it was around 2000, it was around like the, the there was a recession, around the recession time. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a recuperation, almost a balance of the, I don't want to say the balance of the books, but yeah. to be able to balance a lot of the funds that they probably had. Well, and to s- then, yeah, and, and in fact, Bishop Waddell mentioned in the 60 Minutes interview that the church has gotten back a return on its investment, made money that goes back into the nonprofit. The second distribution that's being accused is that the church distributed money to Beneficial Life, which is an insurance company. That okay. In 2008, really struggled financially, like a lot of insurance companies did, and uh, because their financial investments struggled mightily. And so... Um, so what ended up happening was the church essentially used this money, and this is even term that, a term that that uh, Bishop Weddell used to bail out Beneficial Life. Yeah. Here's the thing: Beneficial Life is owned by Desert Management Corporation, which is owned by the church. This is a a, a subsidiary that the church owns that it was just trying to keep healthy financially. All of these for-profit entities pay taxes, so yeah, when they yeah. have profits, they pay income taxes. So there's no like avoiding taxes here. Yeah, and the idea that this was again an illegal distribution, like like the like the whistleblower report accuses, there's just not enough evidence that that's true. Okay, the overall principle to me is that there was a there was a need in that organization to maintain to maintain to, its, to maintain the instead of, of losing it. Yeah, completely. exactly. Yeah, to maintain the health of these companies that the church had invested in. It directed resources into them, and it's gotten a return yeah. off of it, yeah. just like any other investment. That's probably what happened. Okay. Now, we don't know all the details, but the whistleblower doesn't have counter evidence details to show that it happened in an improper way. Okay, Not anything that's been shared anyway. Yeah. Well, listen, that, I think that's important to realize, too, because um, just on the surface, it's like, oh, it seems like it's trying to get a kickback, right? From uh, yeah, but again, like like, like for a reason, for a reason, like to, to invest in it so that it can get more money to, to um yeah, but kickback. How did to, you mention to it? To whom and what for, for what? But purpose? that's what I'm saying. That's you what put I'm your saying. Money into an investment, you expect to get your money back. 
if if it's a church getting the well, money I mean, back, to individuals, money, to individuals. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So, the, so that they would evidence. lose or that they would gain. Yeah. yeah, there's not evidence that the church did it to prop up private investors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, it, it did it to prop up its own investments. Now, if there are other investors who benefited, like which would have been the case in City Creek, that's as it is. But the church didn't want to lose this money in that investment, so they put the money yeah. in. When it comes to, to beneficial life, my understanding is the church is the only owner of that entity. Mm. And so, so it's kind of back to, yeah, 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 it just all goes back to the church. The, the clearest and cleanest way to look at it is it's an investment. Yeah. And is it a profitable investment? All the evidence seems to say yes. And it just so happens to also make Temple Square a nicer place to visit, which yeah. is not bad. But even if the only reason they did it was to get a financial return, they did a good job. That's true. And I think, thank you for clarifying that, because I think, yeah. um, that's what kind of brings to this next question because the the hundred billion we don't know what what it is, but I guess the question would be: Is that abnormal? That amount? It, yeah. So abnormal is a, a word that comes with I don't know. There's I mean it's it's definitely unique. We'll call it that. Yeah. I mean in the sense that there is no church we know of that has at least in the United States that has resources that vast. I would be shocked if the church was bigger financially than say the Catholic Church globally. Yeah. Um, because that church is far bigger in membership, um, you know, far bigger in real estate holdings alone, for example. And so I think, um, but as far as like churches that are headquartered in the United States, it's it's the biggest we know of. And that is that that is notable. I mean, especially when you consider the humble origins of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, yeah. you know, being founded with what started out as six official members in New York in 1930, in, sorry, in 1830, I mean, it's a pretty remarkable story, um, especially also when you consider how close the church was to bankruptcy. Um, That's right. Multiple times. That's right. So, so it is a big number. Yeah. And um, and that is probably what gets a lot of people's attention. For sure. And but but even with that in mind, when it does come to that number, I mean, when it comes to like, because I've heard a lot of people say this is like a rainy day fund. Mm-hmm. And so, can you kind of? Can you give more detail on yeah. why that would even be important to note that that isn't just some lump sum of money just sitting there, but it actually is, yeah. uh, there is a purpose for it. Sure. So uh, so let's talk about what endowments are for, because this yeah. is essentially an endowment. Yeah. Um, it, it's not um, maybe described that way, but it's a very common tool used in the nonprofit sector. Okay. And essentially an, an endowment is where a nonprofit, usually because of a, a big beneficiary, like a, a millionaire or billionaire comes along and says, Hey, I want this nonprofit to exist and I want them to never have to worry about money again. Hmm. And so what you do is you come in and you set up an endowment and the donor or donors put a bunch of money into essentially investment accounts that are now owned by that nonprofit. Those investment accounts grow over time, and with the growth, the money goes out to the to the nonprofit or charity so that they can carry on their activities. Universities use endowments. Harvard's savings are essentially an endowment, and uh, and you know the University of Utah, for example, has an endowment of over a billion dollars, and they use that to help subsidize their activities to maybe you know uh, engage in certain projects to fund research, you know, pay for scholarships, all kinds of things. So this is an endowment, essentially, yeah, that the yeah. church has. Um, what's unique about this endowment, not not unique, in that there's, no more, there's no other endowment like in the world, but, but it makes it less common, is this is an endowment that the church, because of how it manages its assets, puts money into it so the savings grow, but they don't take very much money out. Mm. Now, technically, they do take money out. Money goes in and out of 
of this endowment all the time. Yeah. Uh, and that was made public. In fact, uh, uh, that was mentioned in the 60 Minutes segment yesterday. So money goes in and out. Yeah. But the net size of this endowment continues to grow from one year to the next because the church is treating it as a savings account that they want to grow for a rainy day. So what would a rainy day look like? Um, well, let's pretend that the church decided it didn't want to collect tithing anymore. Let's say it decided, you know what, we have this big savings. It's growing at this predictable rate. We don't need people to pay tithing anymore. Um, and so, mm -hmm. therefore, we're going to turn down any donations. So let's say that happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to know the math because, again, we're speculating. There's lots that we're guessing at here. But, the, but an endowment of roughly this size, depending on the the percentages involved, you know, in terms of like what their portfolio grows at, what the ongoing expenses of the church are and so forth. One guess, and this is just a little quick math I did in a notebook, is that the church could probably continue operating for about 16 years. Now that mm. assumes a couple things. That assumes, again, nobody's paying tithing. That assumes that, uh, that the mm. assets continue to grow at a predictable rate. Um, and uh, and it assumes that the church stops growing in terms of its its expenditures. Now, a bunch of those assumptions aren't even close to true. Yeah. And let's describe a few things that are different that actually make that 16-year number that was just my guess to actually probably be smaller. Yeah. Um, the church right now is supporting 17 million members globally, but that number continues to grow. And so the church is going to keep growing. Uh, is a reasonable assumption. Number mm -hmm. two, if there really was a rainy day, meaning that the economy had a downturn, you could expect the church's savings to drop in value by That's a substantial true. amount. Right now, they're worth 100 plus billion or whatever it is. But if mm. but if the economy tanked, That's which right. it has before and did 15 years ago, right, in a bad way uh, with the financial crisis, you know, most nonprofits saw their endowments shrink by around 20%. Wow. In the financial crisis of 2008. So whatever whatever nest egg the church is sitting on right now, we could anticipate based on history that it could shrink by that much uh, given another downturn like the financial crisis uh, in 2008. So that, again, shrinks the amount. So here you have an amount, a savings amount that does shrink, a membership that does continue to grow, it would be reasonable to think that the church could keep operating on, you know, given a, a set of circumstances, it wouldn't be hard to imagine the church would have enough money to operate for 10 years instead of 16. Wow. Or theoretically eight years instead of 16. The, the point is to say that this isn't a foundation that's just giving its money away when it's all given away, it's done. This is an organization that has promised to provide spiritual support for covenant-keeping members for not just years to come, decades to come, centuries to come. And um, mm. and if it stopped collecting tithing, based on current math, it would probably run out of money. That's interesting. You really make me think of a really important piece because there's implications, from my perspective at least, if yeah. people stop paying tithing, from a spiritual perspective, what does that look like yeah. to the people? Do well, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And this brings up another really important point, which is a, another common misconception. Because the way a lot of this gets framed is church members who are paying tithing to this very wealthy church, which it is wealthy. I mean, that's that's absolutely the right word to use for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, this very wealthy church is receiving tithing 
from a bunch of suckers is the mm. argument, right? I mean, and you see this mostly expressed on like social media when people are commenting on the news whenever this comes up, but it's a total misrepresentation of what tithing is about. Tithing is a spiritual principle. It's something that people do mm. not because not not because they want to make sure this next chapel gets built, uh, although that's a nice benefit of paying tithing is that chapels can get built all around the world. Yeah. Especially in places of the world where the local members could never afford building a chapel. Um, uh, what's what's really great about tithing and why we do it is because it's a way for us to show faith and gratitude to God. That's why we pay tithing. Yeah. We we show gratitude to him by giving 10% of our of our increase so that uh, we're saying, hey, you gave this this 100% to me out of gratitude, recognizing all, all my blessings come from you. I'm going to give you 10% back. And, and it's a powerful spiritual principle. Um, but, uh, and a lot of people tithe even if they aren't religious. Mm, um, there's mm. a whole movement called the Effective Altruism Movement where they encourage people to tithe, essentially, but they give their money to other kinds of organizations besides churches. But there's a lot of power in the principle and there are actually all kinds of benefits the research shows for charitable giving. And research shows that, and this isn't just like a correlation relationship, this is a causation relationship. Engaging in charitable giving uh, makes people happier. Yeah. It makes people healthier. And it actually, and the mechanisms here are still unknown, makes people wealthier. And one economist estimated that each dollar of charitable giving on average produces $4.35 in increased income to the giver. Wow. And so so this is a principle that that you know benefits. Now I don't want to misrepresent this as like a gospel of wealth that it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. guaranteed if you pay tithing, you know, God's going to bless you with riches cuz that's not what it's about is 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 getting rich. And there are plenty of faithful people who have paid tithing their whole lives and would never be what we consider rich. Mm. But the reason they do it is because it's the way that they show gratitude and faith. Mm. And um and you know, and then the faith part of it is not just faith in God, but it's also faith in the church that He established. Hmm. And so He's asked us not just to give the ten percent away, but He's asked us to give it to Him. And hmm. giving it to Him for Latter Day Saint means giving it to His prophets in the way that they direct the affairs of the church. And hmm. tithing really does support all these important things to us. Um, but more than anything, we do it because it opens the windows of heaven. And opening the windows of heaven doesn't mean necessarily that dollar bills are going to rain down on your house, mm. but it does mean blessings will, and blessings of 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 peace, blessings of um, of a deeper understanding of spiritual principles, a deeper capacity of love for others. Like these are the kinds of things that also really matter to a person of faith, and this is why we pay tithing. And so the idea that we're giving our money to this rich church, meaning we're a bunch of suckers, is just completely excluding the real reason that Latter-day Saints pay tithing. So in this, you know, in this article, mm -hmm. all of these things that are in the news, it's like, oh, there's this 100 billion, that's all the focus is on. But as I'm talking to you now, it yeah. feels like there's something way deeper to paying tithing yeah, and the funds of tithing that is way beyond the paper or whatever the whatever right. the uh whatever the uh, currency is and that's what kind of happens a lot of times when you are involved in this relationship with god yeah and he you know in malachi he says he he opens up the windows of heaven and maybe it's not even physical maybe it's not even the mental but maybe the heaven is i the perception the perspective of god i yeah. see him differently now because he doesn't need money he can 
pop up. He can. He That's made right. the earth. Well, I mean, he doesn't need money. That's right. And so, and even in, including what you had mentioned too, that I think is important to note is um, we have to give our trust to to God. Yeah, and, and and the way that we do that is we give it to the church, and that's that's kind of the way that it works. Even in nonprofit organizations, if you donate to a nonprofit organization, yeah, that you donate to them, and it's kind of you that you're then giving it to them. And from what I'm understanding, yeah, and you don't get it back either. I mean, yeah. there's a misconception that if you don't like the way a nonprofit uses your donation, you can sue them over it. That's not the way gifts work under the law. Once you've given a gift, it's gone, and there's no contract there, right? Yeah. Unless you got the charity to promise it would do something with your donation, which is generally not the case. You 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 don't get to sue for it back. And so you're right. When you make a donation to charity, you're trusting them. Tithing is different because tithing is, is trusting it to God. And I think this is another misconception. Yeah. A lot of people think about a church as like a social club. Like they think mm. of it as like you're a dues paying member to get into the club. You get a, it means you get to attend church on Sundays. You get to, you know, show up at the potluck dinner activity. You get to go to the temple because you're paying your dues. And again, this is a complete misrepresentation of what church is for. Like church is not about just being a member of a club. It's about uh, building a relationship with an internal being. We, we go to church and we worship, not just to, build each other up but we go to church and worship because we're worshiping somebody who we believe loves us wow and and we've and and we want to love him back through our worship and this is what church is for and um and you know the idea that like i, I it, it seems weird to me to define my faith by by this institution because the institution is just there because god put it in place mm. But my faith is rooted in a relationship with God and Jesus Christ, not with an institution run by mortals that he picked to run it. Um, I'm grateful for the church, obviously, immensely, uh, because there's so many ways that it does build my faith. But the idea that it stops at the institution, yeah. like that my faith is somehow kept in a file folder somewhere up you know, in Salt Lake City, is again a misrepresentation mm. of what this is all about because it's something much deeper. And and if you don't understand that, if you don't appreciate religion, if you don't appreciate why people would engage in religion in organized ways, I can understand being critical of yeah. all the things that we're talking about here. But uh, but for those who see it differently in the way I've described, which is, you know, the, the members of, of the church that that are engaging in this personal relationship with God, this is what it's really about. Yeah. So it is something much deeper. Absolutely. It's something much deeper. I think like it's important to just to kind of synthesize that like yeah. we're talking all about the money is like that's it's, it changes the way it changes everything yeah and the money is part of it i mean yeah, you, yeah, it, yeah. and and so it's it's if you if you don't have an appreciation of what church is for if you don't have an appreciation for why people organize religiously speaking then i can see why you wouldn't understand the nature of the details in this story but if you're gonna, but if you're gonna see it from the perspective of Latter Day Saint, in this case, for example, you gotta incorporate all this other stuff as part of how you see it. Yeah. Now there's a lot more there that we haven't talked about. Um, you know, like what are the teachings of the church in terms of like uh, caring for the poor and needy, for example, yeah. which you know is part of the church's mission. And so this is where other criticisms arise, and it's worth talking about them. But, but fundamentally, that idea of tithing is a spiritual principle first. And uh, one that involves us showing our gratitude to God and one that involves us showing faith 
and the organization that he's established. Yeah. For me personally, I know for me, it's an assurance thing. Hmm. It's an assurance. It's like I can I can expect a miracle and not not not, not like I'm like I'm not using God right. in my prayers. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's not a vending machine. He's not right? a vending machine, but yeah. it's like more based on the promise he already gave. Hmm. It's like if if I'm willing to keep the promise that yeah. he gave, that he asked me to keep, yeah. then I can with more assurance expect him to fulfill the promise that he gave me. Yeah. Which, you know, in, in the baptismal covenant is to mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort, yeah. to be a witness of God at all times and in all things and in all places, right? Yeah. Uh, but that he will open up the windows of heaven, which I think is interesting because he says that he'll he'll bless us with his spirit as we keep that covenant. But it's the same pattern that you notice yeah. where he gives us more than we could ever receive that, like you said, the, the money's going to run out, but but his connection with us is what we really want in yeah. the long run. That's right. Um what would you say, I mean, there's so many things that I would say um, are connected. Can you give us some more understanding of just from a nonprofit governance uh, perspective of of the importance of churches in general, yeah. in society? I'm you so know glad what you mean? asked this question. Yeah. Yeah. So the, if, if you were to pick one phrase that has probably been tweeted more than any other in response to this news and over the years that it's been breaking and then resurfacing, the phrase would be, tax all the churches, <laughs> right? And the idea yeah, is that, yeah. the idea is that, that, that churches aren't real nonprofits, they're not real charities, and that therefore, why are we giving them the tax break when they, when they earn a profit every year? And so it's good to talk about that because this again represents, I, I think it, re I mean, it definitely represents differences in social policy, right? There are people who think that churches don't have a special role in communities. And um, so let's talk about why tax breaks exist to begin with. Yeah. Tax breaks exist to encourage more of a thing. Mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of one of the ironclad laws of economics is that if you want less of something, you tax it. Mm -hmm. If you want more of it, you stop taxing it. Whoa, this is, this is important. <laughs> say it again. If you want less of something, you tax it. Yeah. If you want more of it, you stop taxing it. I mean, this is like an ironclad law of economics, and there's really no way around it. You just, whatever you tax, you get less of. And so... The federal government and state governments need taxes in order to operate and provide public services, the roads we drive on, you know, the 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 safety net that that people count on, the um, the schools that our kids go to. Like all these things are funded by tax dollars. And and so it's important we pay taxes. But we've said certain groups don't have to pay taxes, right. certain activities don't aren't don't come with a tax burden because we don't want less of it. Mm. And so so the federal government, and there are different taxes, by the way. That's another misconception. We've got like state sales taxes, state property taxes, state income taxes. Sometimes there are local versions of all those things. Um, and then at the federal level, we've got income taxes and inheritance taxes and, and import taxes and other things there too. What we're talking about primarily with the church is what's called the federal income tax. And the federal government has exempted from, through Congress, has exempted certain kinds of activities from taxation. Let me give you some examples. Homeowners associations are tax exempt. They don't pay income tax. Um, uh, hospitals, yeah. or if they're organized as nonprofit corporations, they're also tax exempt, so they don't pay income taxes. Um, uh, let's see, labor unions are tax exempt. 
Uh, at one point, the NFL was tax exempt. That's right. <laughs> because yeah. it was exempt as what's called a 501c6. It was a specific tax treatment that they lobbied for way back in the 60s. They gave it up not long ago for various reasons. But the NFL operated tax exempt for a long time. So where do churches fit into this? Mm. Churches have been tax exempt for as long as tax exemption as a principle has existed. Mm. You can go all the way back to 1601 in the United Kingdom when... Uh, when Parliament passed what's called the Elizabethan Statute of Charitable Uses. Okay. And this is the first time ever that government officially created tax exemption for charitable activity, where they said, hey, there are some things we want to encourage. We want more of this, so we're going to create a tax exemption. And way back in 1601, on the list of things that were exempt from taxation, churches were included on mm. the list and have been at least in the, the British legal tradition, which we imported here into the United States, as long as tax exemption has existed, churches have been exempt from taxes. And so um, the idea of saying tax the churches would actually be a massive historical change mm. because it, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have happened in hundreds of years. You get less you tax if you want less mm -hmm. of something, you tax it. That's right. So what would you, what do you what is the less what do you get less of if you tax churches? In your opinion, you get less church, and and, and there are some people who would say hear that and say awesome, like why? Like because they see organized religion in negative ways, and they see if we got rid of it or had less of it, that the world would be better. It's surprising to me how many of those people um, don't pay attention to the science around religious activity. Mm. Because there's quite a bit of social science, and there needs to be more, quite frankly, but there's quite a bit of social science around religious activity. And this is mostly looking at an individual level when you look at individual worshipers. And by the way, most of these measures, it doesn't matter what church you're a part of, mm. meaning mm. that these, these uh, outcomes tend to hold for across a wide range of religious activity. People who are active and, and active in a religious congregation usually is defined as they attend a religious service once a week. Okay. And again, it doesn't matter which church. But people who are religiously active are on average happier. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> they have higher levels of what's called social capital, mm. which is a way that they can rely on others when in need. Mm. Uh, social capital has all kinds of other huge benefits. Like, they have the connections. Like more peaceful community. Yeah, they have connections with others and they have better communities. They have, they're, they're, they have better health. And so all these things spill out of the social capital that comes from organized religion. Um, and, and, and they also are more generous. Interesting. And not just generous to their churches. If you look at the charitable giving of religiously active people, they give more to non-religious charity than non-religious people do. Now, that's really? an average. You're going to have non-religious people who are really generous, and you're going to have religious people who are, are more stingy with their donations. But on average, people who are religiously active are more generous to charity. And in fact, this is actually one of the strongest demographic predictors of charitable giving. If you sort of wash out income levels, geography, gender, those sorts of things um, that are just sort of basic across, and you look for more distinctive personality attributes— being attending a religious service once a week is one of the strongest predictors that a person gives to charity, not just to religious charity, but to non-religious charity. Interesting. Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't attend church that you're not going to give to charities. Of course. Yeah. It's it's just and average. lots of, lots yeah. of non-religious people yeah, of course. Do, give, do, give to, um, uh, do give to charity very generously, and it's, it's amazing. But one thing that you would expect to see if you got less church is you would see less donations going to the charitable sector for non-religious use. 
Wow. Almost like they're, cor- they're correlated or they're caused? Uh, the religion would, the, the loss of religious activity would cause a drop in charitable giving. Wow. So, so there obviously is a huge impact in church in general within the society. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I, cause I'm just trying to think of okay, what if, what if, what if, okay, we tax, cause we're not just talking about taking away the churches. We're just saying, let's say they have more of a burden to where now there is more taxes being paid. Yeah. So then that money is now not going to go to what, you know, fill in yeah. the blank. Well, and the blanks are, are more numerous than just like attending, just hosting religious services. If you look at the roles that religions fill, or I should say organized religions like churches fill in the United States and around the world, um, you know, they engage in all kinds of social services. Yeah. Uh, youth programming and activities are very commonly done through churches. Uh, support for low-income people often happens through churches. Um, community engagement of all different kinds, just social engagement, engagement of the kind that builds social capital happens through churches outside of religious ceremonies. Uh, churches fill a wide range of activities that we consider nonprofity kind of stuff. Yeah. They're just doing it through their church, but it yeah. happens all over. And you probably are not going to find a community. In fact, I'm guarantee this. You're not going to find a community of any size in the United States that doesn't have some religiously motivated uh, contributions to the community at large. Interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, if you took away churches, um, the nonprofit sector, would be chopped dramatically. In fact, right now, about 36% of charitable giving every year goes to churches. Wow, so there's a huge impact mm-hmm. um, if, if we were to tax. I mean, that's a decision that we make as a community, as a as a people, Yeah. but there's obviously a uh, high impact with, right. with, with them being uh, tax exempt. Yeah, and I, I wanna be clear, there's no universal law that yeah. requires charity, or churches yeah. to be tax exempt. There's no like, there's nothing like inherent in truth that requires it. There are constitutional principles at stake. Um, the First Amendment guarantees the free exercise of religion. Yeah. And our tax policy is a reflection of that, not mandated by the First Amendment, but it reflects that First Amendment principle yeah. that government shouldn't be meddling in churches. And to the extent that that's the case, it makes sense to make them tax exempt. Wow. I, I just think that, um, yeah. I think that's 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 very well said. I I just as I'm thinking about this more, um, I'm just trying to trying to get back to even with the church itself, like the Church of Jesus yeah. Christ of Latter Day Saints. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that people have in regard to the? Because uh, they're like, well, the church should be. That was one of the allegations I really remember is that mm-hmm. the church should be uh, shouldn't be able to be tax exempt because it's not uh, fulfilling its side of the. Yeah, of, of the bargain. So I'm glad because I want to talk about this, and this is getting more specifically into the allegations brought up by the the IRS whistleblower David Nielsen, who was in the 60 Minutes broadcast this yeah. weekend. So the accusation um, sort of falls into two bodies of law. Yeah, and so there, there are multiple accusations, but they generally fall under two areas of the law. One is the federal tax law, which relates to the like which the IRS administers. And the other is securities law, which is the buying and selling of stock, basically, or yeah. any other yeah. investment instrument. And that falls under the SEC or the Securities Exchange Commission. And so, so there are these two areas of law that the whistleblower's accusations relate to. Now, it, the, the big substance of his accusations have to do with tax law, not with the SEC law. Okay. The SEC law is where the church was found to have been uh, violating the law, and they they recently settled for a $5 million um, settlement to sort of put to bed the problems there. I'll go quickly summarize, although I'm not a securities lawyer. Okay. But basically, 
<clears throat> if you're an organization above $100 million in invested assets, and we're talking about like publicly traded stock like New York Stock Exchange, yeah. NASDAQ, that yeah. kind of thing. If you're above a certain size, you have to disclose your trades publicly. You have to, what you bought, what you sold, you have to share with the public. The church, under advice of lawyers, for a stretch of time there, was doing it through a bunch of subsidiaries mm -hmm. with the purpose of having it not be known that it was the church that actually controlled all these investments. So they set up, I think the number is 13 different subsidiaries that all were saying, hey, we're trading this, we're trading this, we're trading this. So the, the trades were all disclosed to the public, but what the public didn't know is that all of the trades were being orchestrated by the church. Mm. Um, that was illegal. And the church uh, settled to resolve that issue. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it's it's easy to speculate about what was going on there. Um, the, the church's strong instinct to keep its finances confidential is what led it into that uh, arrangement. And they got bad legal advice yeah, is what yeah. it comes down to. I mean, yeah. indisputably, they got bad legal advice because their lawyers told them, do this and you'll be okay. And the church leaders trusted their lawyer's judgment and said, okay, we'll be okay if we do this. And it turned out it was breaking the law. So, so some might say, well, okay, they just, that's like an excuse. They just did whatever their lawyers said. And, you know, yeah. but I mean, it is pretty complex. Well-intended people yeah. get in trouble because of their lawyers frequently. And they discovered this issue yeah. years ago, actually. I don't remember exactly how long, but it wasn't like they just, you know, came to understand the truth within the last few months. Like yeah. they've been disclosing these public trades now for, I think it's at least four years in the, in the proper legal way. And so, so there is that issue and a settlement of $5 million from my understanding. And again, this isn't my area of expertise is that a settlement of $5 million is pretty typical for what you'd expect here. Yeah. Again, they were disclosing the actual trades to the public all during that time. They just weren't saying, Hey, it's us as the church doing it. Mm. Um, this raises the transparency issues, which we'll get to, but legally speaking, that's, that's how it shook out. The IRS side of the whistleblowers accusations are where uh, there's not really enough there mm. to claim that the church is breaking the law. I mean, it's it it's actually kind of frustrating because huh. it's really obvious from the first time the whistleblower's complaint to the IRS was made public way back in 2019 that they did not have legal counsel advising them on this submission, or at least not legal counsel with any expertise in this area of law. It's important to note, we're talking nonprofit tax law. This is pretty niche yeah, <laughs> and also extremely complex. And so there aren't a lot of attorneys in the United States that have, and I wouldn't even count myself in this group, even though there's an area of law I know about, but there aren't a lot of attorneys in this space that have high levels of expertise and a pretty complex area of the law. Mm. And the issue that the whistleblower was making complaint about is even more niche than that. Because really? we're not talking about nonprofits in general. We're talking about churches specifically who under federal law get extra special tax treatment. And that's just how Congress decided to do it is they mm. wanted churches to get extra special treatment and they do. And, uh, <laughs> and so this legal treatment allows the church to do what it's been doing. You know, it was really frustrating hearing the, the you know, uh, Mr. Nielsen talking in the 60 minutes interview over the weekend because, uh, you know, he notes at one point in the interview, I'm not an expert in nonprofits. And I just thought, man, yeah. you've had four years to become an expert. Like, and lots of people have said that 
most of the tax issues you raise are not an issue and you keep going after them. Interesting. And so it's frustrating because it's like, man, yeah, get some good get some good advice here because you, a lot of your claims just don't have merit. Yeah. So, yeah. So can I just quickly summarize? Yeah, please do. I'll do my best to keep it. I'm going to get a little bit technical, not because I expect any listener to like keep up with the technicalities, Yeah, but just to illustrate what's going on here and where expertise really matters to yeah. understand the details well. So the church as an entity is not one legal entity. It's at least like 17, I think is the number. That's right. And so it has, you know, the corporation, the first presidency, it has a Deseret Management Corporation, which is a for-profit entity. Brigham Young University is part of the church. It's a separate 501c3 entity. Among all those entities is another one called Enzyme Peak, which is the, the center of the storm here, so to speak, yeah, in the controversy. Yeah. Enzyme Peak, it has special status in a couple of ways. The church is exempt as what's called a 501c3 public charity. There are different kinds of C3s. Bill and Linda Gates Foundation is a, is a 501c3 private foundation. The church is a 501c3 public charity. Being a public charity gives you a lot more latitude under the tax law than other kinds. And as a church, they get even more latitude. Like they don't have to file tax returns. No churches do. Um, Enzyme Peak is organized as a 501c3 supporting organization. And what that means is their entire reason for existing is to support some other public charity, in this case, the church. And they're also a, uh, treated as what's called an integrated auxiliary, okay. which means all the benefits of being a church flow into this Enzyme Peak entity. So Ooh. not only do they get the benefits of being a public charity, but they also get the benefits of being a church, even though Enzyme Peak isn't technically a church. I mean, nobody worships there. It's right? an on-paper legal entity. It's an on-paper legal that has the, that, that has, has staff and employees and everything like that. And this is all again deliberately the creation of tax law. Both mm. Congress, you know, both Congress in writing statutes, plus the IRS and, and and the Treasury Department issuing rulings and 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 promulgating regulations and so forth. Anyway, the the whole point of it is is the church set up Enzyme Peak to manage its investments, and in doing so, they get to act as though they are the church. Mm. And uh, at least they get all the benefits of being a church, fully legal. And many of the whistleblowers' complaints ignore that um, that arrangement under the law. In fact, he doesn't in in the original complaint he doesn't even really address the, what an integrated auxiliary is. Which, if you know this area of law, you know this is a pivotal status that that shapes how what the proper outcome is. And his original complaint just largely ignores that. Hmm. Um, again, all of that technicality. I see what you're saying. Illustrate how technical it is and to yeah. show why the technical understanding of the law really matters here and how a huge swath of the, of the whistleblower's complaint either misrepresents or ignores what the law actually says. So what I'm understanding, to, to bring it full, not full circle, yeah. is uh, some of the allegations are based on the idea or, or, or neglecting the fact that that the Enzyme Peak is actually run with the same benefits as That's right. a church. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And with those benefits, That's a great summary. I could have said yeah. that instead. No, no, no. But, I'm, <laughs> but what I'm but what I mean by that is what I mean yeah. by that is allegations are not from whichever sources they come from. Um, yeah. Looking at this, looking at this situation with Enzyme Peak, it's it's you can't take away the fact that legally it is being run. It is a portfolio company, mm -hmm. but it is, it does have the benefits of a church. That's right. And you have to put those into play when you're looking at the, the, 
Absolutely. the situation, the context. 100%. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and the things that it is participating in are legal That's to right. be able to do those. Yep. Yeah. To be able to save money, to be able to invest and yeah. and put all the, uh, and allow it to grow. And But then yeah. that, um, it makes me uh, come to this next question. Um because I mean, because I'm just, I, I think it might be easier if I just pull up the article. Because I like this how you sure. how you take up how you uh, how you come to this point where you're saying there's uh, uh, the main concerns, right? Mm -hmm. You mentioned the main concerns, and you mentioned three main concerns. Yeah, and I thought it'd be interesting to go into those. Great. Uh, number one, should the church hold a hundred billion that could otherwise be spent on helping those in need? Yeah. Number two, should a church have the freedom to avoid transparency in its finances? Yeah. Uh, number three, should a church, especially a wealthy one, pay taxes like the rest of us? I know we've already mentioned that one quite a bit. Yeah. But do you mind going into further detail on on those those top two? Yeah. Yeah. So should a church have a hundred billion dollars is a is a legitimate question. Yeah. And, and and it's a question not just of spiritual nature, it's a question of public policy as well. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, um, you know, that money can be used for all kinds of other good in the world. And there are a lot of people who believe for various reasons that the good that church does through holding religious services, you know, cultivating faith is not, uh, um, is not on par or equal to value, the value of helping the poor and needy. Yeah. It's, it, and if you don't value church, it's natural to be offended at the idea of a hundred billion dollars sitting in any bank account. Hmm. And, and not just a church's bank account and a billionaire's bank account or in Harvard's endowment. Like it's natural to think, hey, this yeah. money could have a higher, better use. Um, so there are a few ways to think about that. Um, legally speaking, we have deliberately created a big tent in which all kinds of nonprofit activity can take place, which includes churches. They are, uh, they are, they are under the law considered charity. I yeah, mean, charity is being a 501c3 under the tax code and religion is charity just as much as anything else. And when mm. you see a lot of the confusion here is when people are misinterpreting the legal definition of charity with a more colloquially one, colloquial one, which is, you know, giving your money to the poor. And so there's that. Um, churches also have an express mission generally, not all of them, but generally have an express mission of helping the poor and needy, mm. which is actually part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints mission. That's true. And it's one of its purposes is explicitly to help the poor and needy. Um, that said, it does that. It has a massive welfare system, uh, actually, you know, which is the envy of many governments around the world. Mm. Uh, government officials and others all the time come to tour Welfare Square and and look at the incredible job that the church does in helping the poor and needy. The same is true also of our emergency response, which is, again, the envy of the world. It, 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 probably only the Salvation Army is better at this than the churches mm. when it comes to responding to natural disasters. And, and activity we weren't always engaged in, actually. And it was President Ballard who was a pioneer in this way really? uh, when he went to Ethiopia back in the 80s. I mean, the, the church is growing into greater and greater assistance to the poor and needy and has been doing that now for three decades, almost three decades. As it's sort of from pretty tough financial times back in the 40s and 50s to the 80s when it was on more solid financial footing and started having the resources to help others. And then from the 80s till now, there is a very clear trajectory of yeah. the church increasing the the help it provides in the world to those who need it most. And that trajectory is continuing to accelerate. 
And so it's been now, and I think the church shared this number since the mid-80s when they started, it's now been over a billion dollars that the church has dedicated to this specific purpose. Yeah. Not including education, all the other things they do specifically to the really humanitarian service, relief for the poor and needy. Um, and that number is continuing to grow. So the question is, should they have $100 billion? Um, well, it depends on what you think $100 billion is for. Um, if you think it should only be for the poor and needy, you can be frustrated that the church isn't giving it all away now, but you can be encouraged by the fact that the church is giving away an increasing amount of that as time goes on. I want to, I want to, I want to touch on this idea of of transparency. Yeah, and I think that, and I, and I, as I read your article, it was interesting to to note there are some really important reasons why the church. There are logical reasons why the church would like to stay um, confidential. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think this is actually where the biggest, like, heart of the controversy is. Yeah, the tax law issues we've already talked about. Yeah, like I, the church isn't breaking the law unless unless the IRS comes up with some new interpretation of pre-existing rules or laws. Um, it, it's almost certainly going to be the case that the IRS never takes any action on this because the church isn't violating this law. Yeah, and then the securities laws we've already talked about. So the legal issues we can put to bed. The the bigger ethical question is should the church be disclosing this information to the public? Yeah. Uh, you know, and transparency is a really important tool to avoiding bad behavior. So, you know, you mentioned at the start, one of the things I teach is not just nonprofits, but uh, I also teach business ethics. And, uh, you know, the important nature uh, of business ethics means you have to think carefully about, about doing your day-to-day job in an ethical way. And transparency is one of the ways we encourage that, right? We we require people to share information that will prevent bad behavior. Yeah. And so transparency is a tool. It's important to note, in most cases, transparency isn't necessarily an ethical good in itself, but it leads to ethical good, meaning that that there's information that is absolutely appropriately confidential. Yeah. So for example, a spouse is never going to be required under law to testify against their spouse in court. There's legal value to that, and, and not just legal value, but ethical value to that. The same is true of uh, confessions you make to a priest or, or uh, you know, things you share with your lawyer. Like, mm. so, so transparency is not sort of this universal ethical good, but it leads to ethical good in so many situations. This is why it matters here, because people are accustomed to the need of transparency as a way to protect against bad behavior. Yeah. So taking that as like a baseline principle, transparency by default is a good thing. There are circumstances where a lack of transparency makes sense. Um, Like not just legally, but ethically. Um, Here the church is legally afforded a massive amount of confidentiality. Yeah. The, The law does not require them to disclose their finances, except in the ways that they're already doing. SEC, publicly traded securities, they're disclosing that information like we talked about. But beyond that, they don't have to show their bank accounts to anybody. Yeah. And uh, and 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 the, the law entitles them to that. So the question is, ethically, should they be sharing this information? Well, there's the one argument that they should be sharing this with all of their members. Um, I can see the reasoning behind that behind that argument in the sense that to the extent that we all are members of this church, uh, not not members in the sense that like we have voting rights or anything like that, but members in the sense that we have a stake in this organization, um, uh, that might be an argument for the church disclosing its finances, which it, by the way, actually used to do in general yeah, conference yeah, every year. Yeah, it did. <laughs> so, but they stopped doing that. All the numbers. In order to, because 
the finances historically, as I understand it, were kind of a mess. Yeah. And so they stopped disclosing the information and got their house in order under President Tanner and, and were put on much more sound financial footing. Um, the, there are reasons, though, for the church to not disclose that information, which uh, you know have to do with just the practical management day to day. Uh, number one, if you disclose all this information, we've seen it already because of this whistleblower report. Oh. Every crank in the world is going to come out and tell you what you should be doing with your money. You're not going to make nearly everybody happy. <laughs> so, from a PR perspective, yeah. there was a, there was that at least that one advantage to not disclosing the information. Number two, and the church has said this as well, they uh, hesitated to share how they manage their finances because they didn't want a bunch of other church members mimicking their investment strategies. Mm, and then if the church it. and then if the church did a bad job managing its investments, they would worry that they would destroy the faith of a bunch of members who were just mimicking the church's investment strategy. And I can understand that concern too. And I can see that people would do that. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, there are definitely who, a lot they, of church, who are they investing in. Yeah, there, there are a lot of church members yeah. who wish they could just like follow the map that the church has followed in managing its finances, and they would do it faithfully. And then if they had a bad year, they might stop going to church because they're mad. <laughs> so but wouldn't they also be able to say, "Well, they, yeah, they led me astray. Like they invested yeah. in such and such company, and I did too, and then it crashed." Yeah. And yeah, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then another reason, and and this was also shared in the interview. Uh, by Bishop Waddell, um, um, it is a distraction from the church's purpose. Now, that's a convenient excuse. If you're if you're a critic, you see that as a very convenient excuse because it's basically it comes across as like hand waving, don't look behind the curtain kind yeah, of argument. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you're a faithful Latter-day Saint and you genuinely believe that the purpose of the church is to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ to bring his message and covenants to as many people as possible, um, the finances become a distraction. And I encountered this as a missionary. I mean, I was a missionary in Romania in the 90s. And Romania was in many ways a poor country. And there were a lot of people who thought that as, as Americans, we were coming there offering mm -hmm. money, not mm -hmm. spiritual salvation. Mm. And um, I guarantee I, I would be shocked to know if that problem wasn't made worse around the world as this information was made public. I bet that people were a lot, and, and every missionary in most of the world experiences this, where they think where somebody is like cozying up to them as missionaries because they want to get paid. Mm. And and that's a great example of how this is a distraction um, because you know the the church wants people to make covenants with with Jesus Christ. It doesn't want people to to align themselves just because just so they get paid because they're going to be disappointed, especially when they get to the lesson about tithing and fast offerings and they realize that yeah. not only they're not going to get paid, but they're being asked to make contributions as a sign of their faith. <laughs> wow. So, but when you say yeah. that for any relationship, a relationship that requires nothing, and I know there's yeah. a quote from Joseph Smith that mentions that, yeah. uh, that uh, I don't want to butcher the quote. I have to find it and put it up. But basically, the idea of it is, I mean, I think it, I know the one you're talking about. It's it's essentially yeah. that if it, if God that a religion that doesn't require the sacrifice of all things yeah. is incapable of leading to salvation or something along those lines. Basically, the yeah. idea is if if, if if think about it in any relationship, if there's no sacrifice in the relationship, what foundation do you have yeah. in the relationship? Yeah, you know, I, I agree. And so, so those are a handful of reasons that the church has for the the lack of transparency. It's legally entitled to. It doesn't want the distraction. Um, you know, uh, it's worried about people following its investment strategies and being worse off because of it. I mean, so these are all examples of, of things that have been publicly disclosed by the church's reasons for it. 
I'll be honest, I don't think any of those fully capture the argument here. Mm. Um, and the reason is because the church is making a trade-off mm. when they d decide not to disclose. Because all those things sort of painted as like, well, this is a home run, no big deal. They shouldn't be transparent. Um, the reality is this, they pay a price. Um, and I guarantee you they do it willingly and knowingly because of the benefits of of not disclosing the information. In fact, the instinct for for mm. confidentiality is part of what led them into the legal problems they had with the SEC. Mm. Um, if your instinct is to be confidential in all things, you're going to look for every opportunity to be confidential, mm. and then you might rely on the bad advice to help you maintain that. Mm. There is a price that the church pays for its lack of transparency and um, in sort of the public discourse. Um, I think they know the price they pay, and I think they you know, have the reasons for choosing that. Um, the question then is, well, is that unethical? Mm. And this is the part that nobody's talking about. It drives me crazy. <laughs> what is the secret money being done? What's, what's it being used for? That's what, right. What is That's the right. secret money being used for? That's right. And so far, the answer is to grow it. <laughs> and mm. not not to spend it on mansions, not to, uh, you know, like like to buy private jets for people, not to... Uh, this money, there's zero evidence that this money is improperly enriching people, which really is kind of the only, like, uh, not only, but is the main reason you hide money. You yeah. hide money so that you don't have to pay taxes you owe. We've already established the church isn't doing that. And you hide money so you can have more to spend on yourself. And there's no evidence of any individual living high on the hog off of all this, you know, confidential money. And so why is it being kept confidential? Well, if we don't have evidence of, of like truly unethical behavior with the money, then, then what is it being used for? It's being used to exactly what the church has said. We're saving. We're saving for a rainy day. We're saving because the church is going to continue to grow in parts of the world where it's expensive to grow. We're saving because we don't know what the future holds. We're, we're saving because it en enables us to do more and better things later. It's not like that. Those are their reasons. And we and there's zero evidence that they're lying about those reasons. Wow. And so you can you can argue that those are bad reasons. If the transparency was covering up some extra salacious behavior meaning that church leaders were out there like enriching themselves off of tithing dollars, then we'd have real concerns, right? Yeah. But what most people who are outside of the church don't know is that that's not how church finances are managed. And internally, there is a hyper-vigilant auditing culture within the church. Yeah. Everybody who's been a part of a financial decision-making within a congregation knows that this is true. In a ward or a branch, you get audited once a year, um, and every penny is twice followed. a year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, twice, twice a, year. a year. Yeah, and 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 every penny is tracked, and that auditing culture goes all the way up through church headquarters, all the way to the top. If you look at LDS philanthropies, or sorry, now it's called philanthropies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that does a bunch of their fundraising outside of tithing. They have a a really strong widows' mite culture, which you find really kind of everywhere in the church, including at BYU. Yeah. And people, and and they hire outside auditing firms, CPAs, that their only job is to help the church audit its finances to make sure that they're well managed and accurately accounted for. There is a, a hyper vigilant auditing 
culture and practice within the church. And most church members know this because they've experienced it. Yeah. Most people outside the church don't even know that that exists. So the transparency is important. The transparency is necessary. Yeah. And there are ethical reasons why that, that it exists. There's things that are very specific that, that there's trade-offs that take place, mm -hmm. um, whether they uh, indulge this information or not. Yeah. And it's, it's very important to consider those things whenever it looks, when yeah. we're looking at this, at this, at the circumstance. Yeah. And the church may someday decide to, again, start voluntarily disclosing this information because they used to in the past, they stopped for a while. Yeah. They may start doing it again. We just don't know. Um, but, but the idea that it's covering up some other unethical behavior. Yeah. That um, has to be clear. Yeah. There's just not evidence of that. Yeah. And that would be the main thing. You, the, any, any like fraud examiner, or anybody else who saw this situation would say, mm, this lack of transparency is a concern. Yeah. But then they would wonder, well, where's all the money going? Oh, no. I mean, that and charitable they, contribution there doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe, and, I, and, I, and, and recently you do see the church being more open about, hey, we are contributing to this mm -hmm. nonprofit. And I think that they should. I, I think agree. that it's important to do. And I think that maybe because they haven't in the past, as you mentioned, yeah. that might be why there's more like, well, what's going on? But now yeah. I do feel like they are being a little bit more open when they are contributing. I think that's true. I, I know firsthand that there are donations the church has made in the past that they've never made public. Yeah. And, uh, and that's starting to shift. And I really do think that's been a culture change in the leadership um, where they, I think they're more inspired toward the idea of sharing more of the good that's being done, especially because it's being done thanks to the fruits of generous church members who are donating this money. Yeah, that's great. Wow. Um, one of the things that, that I'm really getting on, it's like, it's helping me see if I contrast and I look at them both at the same, look at the spiritual and I look at the, the temporal, yeah. all things are spiritual. Mm -hmm. All things, um, basically witness that there is a God, yeah. both temporal and spiritual. And to me, tithing, in in a sense, it, it's it's really like this. Uh, it, in a way, it's Christ. He sacrificed everything, mm -hmm. like he gave us everything, and he asks us to contribute back. He asks us to to uh, to trust that the people that he calls, but also himself, mostly of above all, yeah. that we can have that we can have confidence in him. Yeah. Um, that we rely more on on him than we do on the physical. That it's really the spiritual that will outlast all of the things that you can buy. Like the money, like you said, even if we stop paying tithing, the money will run out. If we stop paying tithing, I worry though what it would do to the people. I worry what it would do to us and our commitment to God. Yeah. And, and I think it's worth reflecting on this because we're living in a time yeah. when the public discourse or conversations around this idea of sacrifice are turning especially critical. Yeah. The idea is that abusers use that language, for example, is a point they make where they say, you know, oh, you should sacrifice, uh, you know, because it's needed and that's what makes you a good person. And it's really just so somebody can get rich. Yeah. And there are, there, is, there are examples of people abusing that spiritual principle of sacrifice to enrich themselves, to keep down other people and so forth. Yeah. But this has been an argument that's gone back to the Book of Mormon, right? And I don't remember which of the Antichrist figures it was, but basically said like, hey, the, the only reason that they teach all of this is to keep you down, right? Uh. <laughs> and, and so they sort of portray sacrifice as this negative thing. And sacrifice without a God to oversee it would be, or could be, I should say, a negative thing. But also think of all the amazing good that sacrifice produces in the world. We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because some people are abusing this principle. Because when you look at 
People volunteering, for example, that's a form of sacrifice. Americans volunteer around $50 billion a year worth of their time. And it does massive good in the communities where they volunteer. Um, if you, if you throw out the idea of sacrifice, you throw that out. Yeah. If you throw out the idea of sacrifice, you throw out parenting. Mm. <laughs> parenting is a massive continual sacrifice. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And so you throw out parenting or you basically say, I never want to be a parent or you have parents who abandon their kids because they're done sacrificing. The reality is, is that, is that God knows that administered in the right way and with spiritual promises to back it up, sacrifice develops us into more Christ-like people. It does. Because like you're saying, Christ gave all for us. And we learn to become more Christ-like through that kind of sacrifice. And, and there's every reason to hold on intensely to that spiritual principle because of all the good they can do in the world and in us. And, and th there's such amazing divine wisdom in that. Yeah. I think that that's important. I, I'm, I'm so thankful to sit down and talk to you about this to give us a better understanding of, uh, of nonprofit organizations, how they operate to give that's us context fun. into what it looks like whenever we do put, um, our sacrifices at, at play, you know? Yeah. Um, but, as I always say at the end of each episode, I believe that all that we've said is true. I really do. I really, I honestly do. But uh, you don't have to take our word for it. You should go in and find out for yourself. This is Leslie Real. Until next time. We're living in a time when the public discourse or conversations around this idea of sacrifice are turning especially critical.